leaders here at the church. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'd love to do so. Uh, please come up afterwards. I'd love to get to meet you. Uh, we are working through the book of Ruth. Ruth is one of my very favorite books of the Bible um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them I think that I want to make kind of first and foremost is I really believe that the book of Ruth gives us a picture of, of Ruth and Boaz and that they are these really clear examples both of, of how to live a godly life. A lot of times in the Bible we, we have people who do some of that and then they do some other things and we kind of have to like, like, you're like David, right? It's like, yeah, be like David except for that time where he killed that person, Right? And, and we don't have to do that with Ruth and Boaz. They are shining, glowing examples of how do you live a godly life, uh, one in, in wealth and the other in poverty. And it, it's really helpful as a man and as a woman, right? Super, super helpful. I think the other thing that it does is it gives us a really good, clear picture of a, of a Christ-type character and his love and care and provision, and, and for a, a church-type character in, in Ruth, one who is vulnerable and needy, needs to be cared for, needs to be protected and provided for. And so as we read, I'd love for you to kind of have those glasses on a little bit as you read through the passage and as you see these two things, the, the need and the provision are kind of going to be over and over again. And so uh, if you would, I would encourage you to see that kind of through the lenses uh, that we carry around with us all the time. As, as uh, if you're a believer here today, you have those lenses. You, uh, you have the ability to think in that way. Another thing that I love about the book of Ruth is, is the way that words are used in the book of Ruth. There are a lot of connecting back and forth to help the reader move forward and keep track of what's going on in the narrative. Um, and then lastly, uh, I've gotten to live with uh, a woman who is a lot like Ruth for the last 18 years. And so as I read the book, I, 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 see, um, I see my wife a lot. She is diligent. She's brave. Uh, she's bold. She's kind. She's generous. Uh, she's willing to make sacrifices for other people. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that's a large part of, of why I love this book. Um, so as we jump back in, uh, I'd love to give us a, a, a catch-up. You know, when you're watching a show, there's this little preview they give what happened last week. So, so last week on Two Broke Widows or um, <laughs> Crazy Poor Moabite. Um, so so uh, Ruth, or sorry, so Naomi and her husband... Uh, they, uh, they leave with their two sons to go to Moab back in chapter 1. They go to Moab because of a famine. They go uh, over there looking for food. And so uh, Naomi, her husband, and their two sons, they leave. And then the two sons, they marry wives, and they live there for 10 years. Neither one of the wives have children. And then the husbands, uh, all three of them die, the husband and then the two sons, they all die. And so that leaves Naomi and her two daughters-in-law without any care, without any security. And so uh, Naomi hears that the Lord is bringing uh, an end to the famine over in, uh, over in the land. And so she goes back. And so as she's going, her two daughter-in-laws are like, hey, we're going to go with you. And she says, no, stay here. Seek rest and security here through finding a husband. And one of them decides to do that. Uh, the other one, Ruth, does not. And so these two women uh, return back to Israel, to Bethlehem specifically, Ruth and Naomi. They head back. And so when Naomi gets back, she starts talking and telling people, I left here full and I've come back empty. She says, uh, call me bitter. And so she's really just broken. Uh, and she's really not sure about what the Lord is going to do. She seems to be lacking in hope. But we see in chapter 2 that that starts to turn around a little bit. 
Uh, Ruth starts to work in the fields of Bethlehem. Uh, she's picking up grain behind the people that are in the fields, uh, gathering the grain ahead of her. And she ends up in the field of a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is a family member for Naomi. And so it's a, it's a good thing. And so Boaz takes notice of, of uh, Ruth and says, hey, stay here, work in my fields. He says, follow behind my ladies. They're, they're going to uh, kind of lead you along. And then he says to the guys who are working, hey, keep your hands off of her, right? He wants to protect her. He wants to provide for her. And so we see Boaz take this interest in Ruth. And so it begins to inject hope into a story that seems to be quite hopeless. And so as we end chapter 2, we're, we're given this phrase. It says, She, Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And so in that short little verse, we see a couple of things. Ruth, indeed, continues to stay with her mother-in-law, and she continues to work in the fields of Boaz. And we see that the mention of the barley and wheat harvest means that that's about a two-month period. So from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3 is about two months. And so two months passes by, and at the end of that two months, the harvest is coming to an end, and Naomi knows it's time to do something. It's time to take action. And we see that in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. If you'll turn there with me, we'll start rolling on our passage this morning. So in chapter 3, verse 1, we see this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And this is the same word that was used back in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse, uh, uh, where, where she says, uh, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. So she's saying, I want to help you find rest, and we're going to do that through finding a husband. Same idea. So, we see that, that Ruth needs to dwell in security because where she lives is dangerous. It's fraught with peril. There's insecurity. There's food insecurity. There's danger. There's, uh, uh, you know, the, the threat of attack or abuse, as mentioned uh, back in chapter 2. And Naomi knows this. And so she wants Ruth to find a husband. And these these present realities, these, these dangers are everywhere for Naomi and Ruth. And to be honest, for many women in the developing world, this is exactly the same thing. And so I've, I've had the privilege of getting to found a small Bible school in Dominican Republic, and about half of our students are women. Most of those are Haitian women. And these Haitian women, they live in a country that's not their own. They don't speak Spanish. Uh, they live off of about $3 a day, and that doesn't make ends meet. And so uh, two of my students, one of them has uh, four kids, uh, the other one has three, and both of them lost their husbands uh, within the last few years. And so they live this reality daily, and they are tempted by a lot of different things, uh, one of them being to get married just to put food on the table. And so that reality that, that Ruth and Naomi are living in is, is a present reality for a lot of women around the world. But what I see in these two women, uh, it, it amazes me that with, with four and three children and, and really no way to, to get ahead, just scratching out in existence, they continue faithfully to come to class. 
They continue to encourage their other students to trust Jesus. They continue in a deep and abiding hope that Jesus is good, and they walk that out day by day. And sometimes I I ask myself, and I wonder, if, if I was in the same situation, how would I respond? And we see with Ruth and with Naomi a very similar situation. They are in need of some hope. And they are clinging to what God has given them so far, this hope that he has given them. We see that Naomi is willing to do whatever she needs to do to make sure that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is well taken care of. And so we see in chapter 2, or sorry, in chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, she starts to make a plan. She starts to kind of lay out her plan. And and the plan is, we got to get a husband. So look with me in verses 2 to 4. It says, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But, not, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So Naomi has an idea, and here's the idea. Boaz and Ruth should get together, to which the reader says, yeah, we've been thinking that the whole time anyway. What took you so long? And so finally, uh, she starts to play matchmaker. And so uh, although there are some some strange bits here, a lot of this is is kind of intuitive to us. This is very similar to what, what any mother would do for her daughter who was going out on a first date. She gives her some instructions. She says, Take a shower, put on some perfume, dress up, go to the party at work. And though there's some things that are kind of clear to us or things we understand intuitively, there are some uh, elements of this that are not as intuitive. First, what's winnowing? Second, what's a threshing floor? Third, what's up with the feet? So, so, uh, so the threshing floor is a place where the process of winnowing would happen. It would be a designated place in the community where they would separate the usable parts of the barley from the unusable parts of the barley. And, and that, that process that they go through, it would be like an exclamation point on the harvest season where the farmer gets to see what is the true fruit of all is his investment and his risk and his labor? And this year would be especially joyous because they're coming out of a famine. So people would be fed and wealth would be gained during this time. And so therefore, there will be some drinking, there will be some eating. And much like how modern people might pour a drink or uh, fix a meal uh, to celebrate the closing of a deal, likewise, this type of thing is going to be happening at the threshing floor. They're going to celebrate all of this harvest. So now let's move forward and see, uh, see if we can figure out what's going on with the feet. Since we covered the other two things, let's, let's see what's up with these feet here. Look with me in verse uh, 5 to 7. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her, as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Ruth hears the plan. She agrees to, to follow the plan strictly. She goes down to the threshing floor. She goes unnoticed. Once Boaz has had his fill, he lays down to sleep. 
Ruth then quietly, under the cover of darkness, uncovers his feet, and she lays down there. So let me set the scene. Ruth, the destitute, poor widow, comes to Boaz, the wealthy and getting wealthier, land-owning businessman, under the cover of night, after he had been drinking, she uncovers his feet, and then, then she lays down. I know what you're thinking. This sounds a little shady. It sounds super shady, actually. It has the appearance of evil. You might be thinking, is there something going on here, something more going on here? And if you read around or listen to sermons, you may hear people insisting that, that what is being described is absolutely sexual in nature. And while I agree that the author is intentionally creating tension between the man and the woman throughout the passage, I want to offer a handful of reasons why this is not describing something illicit or improper. One, if the writer of Ruth wanted us to think they were being intimate, he, or he would have said so. So look down in Ruth 4 uh, verse 13. Spoiler alert, it says this. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The Old Testament does not shy away from clear explanations of marital and non-marital intimacy. It knows how to talk about these things unashamedly. Second, in addition, she sleeps at his feet initially, and then he will tell her to stay there until morning uh, down in verse 13. And then verse 14 verifies that that's what she did. They don't lie together, seems to be the idea. And if the writer wanted us to think that they were lying together, there's very clear Hebrew language to tell us that that is what was happening. But that's not the language that's used. Third, the Bible doesn't shy away from revealing that otherwise good characters do bad things. King David being the prime example of that. But in the context of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it seems to be the rule that good guys do bad things, even Gideon. So look with me over in Judges 8, verses 22 to 28. You'll see this. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. To which we're like, man, good job, Gideon. That's really cool. Like, good response. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from the spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread out a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 41 pounds of gold. That did not include, it says, besides the, the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the, worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And look what he did with it, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. And so Gideon's a pretty good guy, right? 
right? We, we kind of understand him to be kind of this, this a pretty good Bible character. But he takes 41 pounds of gold, $900,000 worth of gold in our time, and he makes of it an idol. And Israel worships it. It, it says that they hoard after it. This is not good. And so the biblical authors do not shy away from throwing people under the bus when they live badly. Right? It doesn't want to hide those things. It wants to expose those things. And so it seems that the writer of Ruth presents Boaz as an excellent man in contrast to all those during the time of the judges from the beginning to the end of the book. And, this is a, and in this extremely vulnerable situation, circumstance for Ruth, this proves the point. Boaz did not do what everyone else around him was doing. He's something different. Lastly, if you look at the Hebrew grammar, it insists that Ruth is to uncover not his feet, but the area around his feet, rather than saying to uncover his feet. And so one commentator says this, the clause uncover the place of his feet avoids the suggestion of sexuality that could have been present if the object were uncover his feet. So a little bit technical there, but it seems like both the grammar and the context of the passage and the meaning of the book as a whole encourage us not to think about this as something illicit or improper going on. So now that we know what's not going on, let's talk about what is going on. And I'll tell you like I told Daniel Cresswell when we were talking about this passage. Let's not make it weird. It doesn't have to be weird. Right? There is an explanation that doesn't have to be super weird. So the, so the question is, is there anything in the text that helps us to see that this is actually something not strange? So I think it's best to understand uh, what's going on here is that discreteness is of the highest priority in the mission that Ruth is on. We see that by what Naomi says. We see that in what Ruth does. And then we're going to see it later in the way that Boaz responds. So Secrecy is a big deal here. They don't want anyone to know what's going on. And we'll see down in verse 14, it seems like there are people around uh, at the threshing floor. This is not a private place. And so she wants to speak to him privately, but she can't like go by his house, right? That wouldn't be cool. And she's going to propose to him. She's a, she's a Hebrew, or sorry, she's a Moabite woman proposing to a Hebrew man, right? This is totally inappropriate. And so she's got to do it on the down low. And so how is she going to do that? She's going to do what Naomi told her to do. And this is what Naomi said. Go down there, lay down beside him, uncover the area around his feet. And so that's what we see her doing. And so if secrecy is the key, how is she going to wake him up without making any noise, without scaring him, without alarming him? And I would suggest this. What if you were asleep in your room? Imagine you're sleeping in your room and someone comes in and they uncover your feet. What's going to happen? You, you're probably not going to wake up immediately. But after a little while, you're probably going to get cold. And then that will wake you up. And you're like, Noah, you're just kind of making this up. But there are some things in uh, chapter 3 in verses 8 and 9 that help us to see that that might be exactly what's going on. So uh, read with me in verses 8 and 9. It says, At midnight the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So the ESV, if you're reading the ESV, it says, and you'll see that on the screen, the ESV says that Boaz is startled. But the word here in the original language could, could also be tremble or shake. Some translators translate it, or some commentators translate it as shiver, which in the context would make sense. It's possible that he wakes up because he is cold, he shivers from his feet being uncovered. Either way, he wakes up, he realizes that a woman is at his feet, and the, and the question you might have is, well, how does he know that it's a woman at his feet? Does anything from the pastors tell us? Well, yeah, she's got perfume on, so he would be able to smell her. It's dark, so how does he know? Possibly by her perfume. I don't know, that's what I think. So, how does Ruth respond then? She humbly announces herself and, and makes this strange request uh, that might be missed on us. And, and though the phrase, spread your wings over your servant, is a bit foreign to us, we'll see in Boaz's response that these words are really packed with a lot of meaning. And so one of the best ways to figure out what does it mean is to look in a different place that the Bible uses this same phrase. And so if we look over at Ezekiel 18 and verse 8, <laughs> I'd encourage you to go back and read this passage uh, later this afternoon if you have some time. It, 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 reading it in context is super helpful. Uh, but this morning I'll spare you that, uh, that experience. Um, in verse 8 it says, When I passed by you and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment, or wing, or spread my wings over you, and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And so here, the phrase is used by the Lord as he speaks through Ezekiel to his people. And his people are personified here as a young woman who is exposed to the elements and without care and protection. Note the similarities to Ruth in, in, in her vulnerability. In need of protection, need for security. And God initiates care for his people and spreads his garment over her. He brings her under his wing, and in doing so, he takes full responsibility for her. He makes a covenant with her. He makes her his beloved. So if we look back at the book of Ruth through the lens that Ezekiel gives us, we get a little bit of clarity. It becomes clear that she is asking him to take responsibility for her to bring her under his caring wing of protection. So um, Steph, uh, my wife, owns a small chicken hatchery, and so we have about 70 chickens at any time around our house and yard and everywhere, they're everywhere. And so I know a little bit about chickens. And so when a mother chicken wants to protect her chicks, she does this thing right here. She squats and she puts her little wings back like that. Do that with me. Put your wings back. All right? So this is what she does. And in doing that, she creates a safe place for the chicks to come up under and be protected from whatever might attack over top. It's a defense mechanism. It's a protective mechanism. And this is exactly what we are seeing, the imagery that is being given to us in this phrase. It's a, it's a language of protection, care, provision, security. And so if you add to that imagery the request or the, the insistence that she is saying to Boaz, you are a redeemer, you're one who can take care of me if you choose to, her request really starts to take shape. And here's what she's requesting. 
she's requesting that he marry her. This is a marriage proposal. And essentially she is saying, would you use your position as a a redeemer relative and your God-given wealth to give me rest and security? Will you bring me under your wing? Will you make me yours? Will you marry me? Is what she is saying here. Also, if we look back to chapter 2, verse 12, we see the same idea of a, a caring wing is presented. But over there, it's the Lord under whose wing Ruth takes refuge. Look there, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it says, The Lord, this is Boaz speaking to her, this is a prayer that he's praying. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz prayed that Ruth would be repaid or rewarded for for all of her faithfulness to, to Naomi, and that God would take care of her. And Ruth is now asking Boaz to fulfill that prayer by extending his wing that she might come up under it. And in the next few verses, we'll see that in Boaz's response that he understands her request to be a plea for his personal care and security rather than something appropriate. Or sorry, something inappropriate. Look with me in verse, uh, uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, and he said, Boaz says to her, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And so his response begins with invoking a blessing on Ruth in the name of God. And note that he uses the Lord, the personal and holy name of God. And I think this statement further refutes the notion that something inappropriate is going on at the threshing floor. Why would Boaz appeal to the holy name of God to bless one who is acting in an unholy manner? Boaz's quickness to bless tells us something good and right is taking place. And he says so in poetic fashion when he says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. So what is he saying here? What does he mean? Well, he's making a a lesser to greater comparison of two kind and faithful acts Ruth has done to him. He says, the lesser kindness is that she did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. So what is the greater kindness that he mentions? It would seem to follow that it corresponds with the request to come under his wing or to be his. So, to put it simply, Boaz is blessing her because she did not go after other men, but is now coming after him. That's why he's, an extending, he's extending a blessing to her. There's also a deep sense here that she has been faithful to Naomi. She has limited her pursuits of other people in order to ensure that Naomi is not left without a family or future grandchildren. So she's, ex- she's expressing care for Naomi and for Boaz in both of these actions. Also, don't miss the connection back to chapter 2 where Boaz invites her to glean exclusively in his fields. Remember, he says, go after, same language, go after my women. That was his encouragement for, him, for her to stay close by him. And he felt like that was a kindness to him. She did the thing that he had encouraged her to do. 
So Boaz now in verses 11 to 13 moves from kind of that poetic language to a bit more practical. Look with me there, verses 11 to 13. It says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz, he solidifies his intentions by telling her, don't worry. And then he starts to tell her explicitly what is the plan. And, and though he is one who can redeem her, there is someone further up the line than he is. It seems like Boaz has done his homework. Uh, he noticed that Ruth had stayed in his fields. And he knows where she fits into the family tree. And he tells her, he is ready to make his move in the morning. And if the other guy wants to take his role as Redeemer, so be it. But if Redeemer 1 will not close the deal, Boaz is willing and ready. He says his willingness to take Ruth under his care is as sure as the life of God who has always lived. That's how sure he's going to do what he said he's going to do, the fact that God lives. That's pretty sure. Anybody tried to buy a house recently? So if you're, if you're trying to buy a house these days, you have to be ready and you have to have cash. You have got to be ready to close the deal. And it seems that that is exactly what we're seeing with Boaz. He's saying, I'm ready to close the deal. I'm ready to do it in the morning, right away. So why is Boaz so worked up about Ruth? Why is he like urgent? Why does it have to happen now? Why not next week? Or after all the grain is dealt with? Boaz is pretty busy. The end of the harvest is here. They're in the middle of threshing. Why the urgency? And I think we get a clue from the one simple word uh, in verse 11, worthy. Ruth is a worthy woman, and everyone around town knows it. And she has made his intentions known to him. And so he is ready to do what needs to be done. And we see in chapter 2, verse 1, that, that Boaz is called a worthy man. So don't miss the author's connection and correlation of the two, that they are both worthy. And so the idea is that the worthy man takes the worthy woman. Furthermore, the word for worthy is the same word used to introduce the famed Proverbs 31 woman. So if you look with me over in Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 11, you'll see something interesting. It says this. An excellent or worthy wife who can find. So the, the, the writer here in Proverbs is like, man, this is super hard to find. And he goes on to say that this excellent or worthy wife, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Really makes you think of Boaz as he's gaining all this wealth. And if you were to read the rest of the Proverbs, you would encounter a woman among women. In all her realms of influence, she brings flourishing at home, in the market, in the workplace, at the family table, in the kitchen, and in the community. She's prepared and diligent. She's wise and fears the Lord. She is wealthy and generous. She is strong and she's fashionable. She's kind and she's, she's, she's winsome. She's an Eve in the truest sense of the word. 
And it's no accident that the writer of Ruth makes this connection by utilizing the same word, worthy or, or excellent. In fact, if you were to look at the way the Hebrew Bible, which is arranged differently than ours, if you were to look at the Hebrew Bible and its arrangement, you would find something striking. Guess what book comes directly after Proverbs 31? Anyone know? The book of Ruth. So, Ruth serves as an example of what is being detailed in Proverbs 31. So, Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman. So, the idea is this. The worthy man has found a worthy woman, and it's time to close the deal. It's time to make the worthy, man, make the worthy woman his worthy wife, seems to be the idea. So, he tells her, lie down until morning. Stay where you are. Lie there until the morning comes. Our story continues in verses 14 and 15. It says this. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And so the need for secrecy seems to, to continue, seems to persist. And we see this in a couple of ways. First, Ruth gets up early before anyone can recognize one another. It's still dark outside. And we see Boaz also says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. It's possible that uh, Boaz is speaking to himself there. Um, but either way, we see that the need for secrecy is paramount. So it's probably the case that there were people around uh, during that time still at the threshing floor. And so before Ruth makes her exit, Boaz does this really generous thing. Like he's been doing from the beginning, he tells her, hold out your garment. And he fills it up with 60 days worth of food. That's a lot of barley, maybe up to 90 pounds. He's just scooping and scooping and scooping into this garment of hers. I can't help but think back to that passage we mentioned about Gideon. You remember Gideon? In contrast, what does Gideon do? Gideon takes the spoils of war, loads it up into a garment for himself, and then makes an idol out of it and misleads all of Israel in his own home. But what does Boaz do? In generosity and care, he loads up the widow with 90 pounds of grain and sends her home. Boaz is simply doing what he has already been doing throughout the book. He's offering security to both Naomi and Ruth. His generosity and care can't be contained. And, and it's that generosity that sets him apart from his contemporaries. He's altogether different than everyone else in town. So with her mission accomplished, uh, Ruth head, heads back home to Naomi. Look with me in verses 16 to 18. It says this. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So, like every good mom... Uh, Naomi wants to know how the date went with Boaz. Uh, after Steph and I went on our first date, uh, her mom called her that night to see how it went. Uh, Steph responded that she had a great time, 
but it probably wouldn't turn into much. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> so in contrast to Steph, Ruth gives her mother a glowing review of the evening at the threshing floor. And this account, it's highlighted. She kind of points to this pile of grain uh, that she was given by Boaz. And the grain seems to function as like a promissory note or, or a guarantee of his intentions. Some have suggested that it's like a dowry. Naomi knows he will make good on his promise that very day because she sees what, she has, she, she sees what he has given to Ruth. She knows this is going to turn into something good. Remember when Naomi returned to Bethlehem back in chapter 1? She said, I am empty. But notice what Boaz did. Boaz makes sure Ruth does not return to Naomi empty-handed. Her emptiness is being filled. Her plan is coming to pass. And ultimately, it's the plan of the Lord that's coming to pass. We see that the Lord is filling what was missing. His plan is coming together. He has a plan to care for Naomi and Ruth. Even though Naomi and Ruth could not see it early in the story, the Lord was working for their good. And as chapter 3 ends, we see the sun is beginning to rise, literally and figuratively, on Ruth and Naomi. The darkness of insecurity and future flourishing is being replaced with these beams of hope. Something good is coming. God's going to take care of these two women. He's going to do that through Boaz. The Lord is extending his wing of care and protection in Bethlehem. And as we look at this story, you might think, wow, that's a really great story, but what does this have to do with me? Why does this matter in my life today, living in this place? And one suggestion I would give you is this. When we see exemplary people in the Bible, especially people like Ruth and Boaz who don't have that little footnote that says, well, don't do that. We should ask ourselves, how are we like them? How are they an example for me to follow? And in Ruth, we find these glowing examples living in both poverty and wealth, powerful positions and lowly places. And so this is my question for the rich among us, for the Boazes in the room. For those on top of their game, closing the deals with, with heaps of grain, gaining in wealth, what do you learn from Boaz? Do you have a heart for the poor? When you're in situations that could seem shady or could be shady, do you protect those who are more vulnerable? Men specifically. When it's dark and no one is looking, when no one can see what you're doing, how do you treat the poor and vulnerable women? in that space? How do you treat the women who are looking for work on the internet? What are you doing to offer dignity and meaningful work to those who need it most? To the poor among us, does your lack lead you to be diligent and hardworking? Or does it lead you towards a type of entitlement or, or self-serving? We see both in, 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 in Ruth and Boaz, this generosity and sacrifice are chief characteristics for them both. How about your reputation? Are you known as an excellent man or an excellent woman? Do you, do you live a worthy or excellent life in your reputations or in your relationships at, at home and at work and in the community? 
And if you're anything like me, you hear these questions and you know that you don't measure up. You know that you fall short of those things. And I believe that Ruth and Boaz are given to us as these good examples so that we can find ourselves short, so that we can begin to ask the question, how can someone like me live a good life? How can someone like me come under God's care? And I'll present to you this, that it is quite simple. It's very similar to what we see with Ruth and Boaz. And Ruth knows her weakness. She knows her inability. She knows her insecurity. She knows her vulnerabilities. But she humbly goes to the one who can provide fully for her, who will give her life. And she simply asks, can I, can I come under your wing? Will you take care of me? And so often for us, we're not willing to do that. We want to do it ourselves, rather than humbling ourselves and asking the only one who can to take care of us. And so that's what I would encourage you in this morning. If you've come into this space, like Ruth or like Naomi, having experienced a lot of brokenness, feeling bitter, feeling empty, the response is not fill yourself up. No. It's let the Lord fill you. Like Boaz, filling up this garment, giving of all that he has. Let him fill you up. Come under his care and provision. That's what he wants to do to you. And that's what he's saying to you this morning. In the same way that Boaz loves and cares for Ruth and is willing to say, yes, I will do for you whatever you ask, the Lord says the same thing. All we simply ask of him is, will you let me come under and so as we sing this morning, as you reflect on this song that we're singing, let it encourage you that way. Ask yourself, what is it that I am trying to do on my own that only the Lord could do? Where is it that I need to come under his care? The Lord has provided for us greatly in Jesus. If the love of Boaz is something to be, uh, the care of Boaz is something to be regarded, how much more the love of Christ that he would give his life, that we could come under the care of the Father, that we could be made family in Jesus. So as we sing, let me pray for us that that, that would be clear uh, in our mentalities, in our heart, and our mind. Father, we do ask that as we, as we sing in response to your word, that you would make the gospel clear to us, that your good kindness to us, your patience and provision in Jesus is more than sufficient, and it is our satisfaction. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.